Take your game day treats to the next level with the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies. Hazelnut Spread is covered in smooth M&M's milk chocolate, delivering a mouthwatering blend of chocolate and hazelnut in every bite-sized piece. Enjoy them on your own or use them to spruce up your favorite desserts. I'd stand in the box against a Justin Verlander fastball for some M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies. But I don't have to. I can go buy some at the store. And so can you. Go hazelnutty and try the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies today. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. If you've seen our video team's latest and weirdest creation, the worst, the worst sports week of the year, you know baseball has the stage almost to itself at this point in the calendar. And we're going to get on to real baseball news in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to take a minute to uh, talk about some sad news that broke since our last show. Uh, baseball prospectus stats are Rob McEwen died last week. Uh, and if you hadn't heard of him before, he was just a hugely important person at BP, uh, someone who made the writers who work there or used to work there uh, look a lot smarter than uh, than they are, including me. Um, so instead of uh, trying to eulogize him on his own, I'll, I'll just direct you to, to what Ben said uh, at the end of last Wednesday's episode of Effectively Wild. Uh, he delivered a really wonderful tribute to Rob uh, that I think really encapsulates the way a lot of people felt about him. So uh Rather than try to to restate uh, what Ben said better than I could have, I'll just uh, direct you there. Uh, but I wanted to express my personal condolences to Rob's friends and family uh, while I had the chance and express my own gratitude for uh, being a, a really important, uh, really important person in the baseball community and a really great guy to work with. Um, so, yeah, there's no no real easy way out of that. So let's uh, let's start the show. And uh, here's Zach Cram. All right. First up, as always, is Zach Cram. Zach, thanks for joining me. Hello. Just by way of preface, I want to say that usually it is not the policy of the Ringer MLB show to give the lead the to give the the listeners or the uh, the Twitter followers what they want. Uh, for evidence of this, you can see the entire episode that Ben and I spent on the baseball episode of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine a couple years ago. Uh, but there has been a great demand for some talk about the Atlanta Braves. Uh, so much so that I have uh, been obliged to cave to public pressure. Um, the big reason we haven't talked about them is just they've been quietly competent all year. And uh, that's not as interesting as as the Dodgers being way out in front of the pack or the rest of the National League, uh, you know, all, alternately uh, being reborn and dying every year. Uh, but they are in first place. They seem overwhelmingly likely to win the National League East and return to the playoffs. They are solid up and down the lineup. Uh, so we're going to talk about them right now. And uh, so, Zach, what what further insight do you have? Well, yeah, I think even if you look at just the National League East, I wrote just last week about how the NL Central might be one of the closest divisions of all time. We kind of expected that about the East heading into the air, uh, Marlins aside, but every other team in the east has had some terrible calamitous stretch the nationals to start the season the phillies of late the mets kind of off and on throughout the entire year the braves have just been plugging away and that's why they have a six and a half game lead as we speak right now but it's been like you said kind of less of a oh we have to talk about them right now it's just been more steady especially of late they've been really really uh playing great baseball since the start of june yeah, and you mentioned the Marlins. I think it's important to give the Braves credit for going 10 and 2 against the Marlins so far. You look at the uh the NLE standings and it's not the whole story, but the Braves are 10 and 2. They're in first place. The Nationals are 10 and 3. The Phillies are 6 and 7 and the Mets are 7 and 4. And like it, so much of this when when the, or so much of the story when the league is bunched up the way it is right now is just taking care of business against the bad teams. Like it was just it's it's like free points. And if you don't take advantage of those free points when they reveal themselves, then you just make your life so much harder. And that's I, that's just sort of of a piece with the the Atlanta narrative so far. It's just they've managed not to make the kind of mistakes that their competitors have yet at the same time. Uh- uh, as we were kind of planning out this segment yesterday, you said, nah, maybe look into the Braves a little bit more. And I have been following them somewhat. And I did some more digging and I'm still not convinced they're all that good. 
which is a weird thing to say about a team that's 60 and 41 with the fifth best record in baseball. I still kind of stand by my assessment at the start of the season, which is that I'm not convinced by their pitching staff at all. And I think they're a team that is at least as presently built going to do better in the regular season than the playoffs. Maybe that won't matter because it's such a small sample in October that kind of anything can happen, but I'm still not sold on this team as a true pennant contender. Yeah, I, I think that's a well, one that's spicy and I love it. Um, but two, I, I think that's a pretty good read. They don't just because of the way their pitching staff uh, has shaken out. You know, we saw this a little bit last year that they just didn't have the pitching to, to hang with with the Dodgers that just like they had a bunch of good players and just didn't have it was a combination of pitching and star power that, you know, we saw Ronald Acuna uh, have some big moments, for instance. Um, but I. You know, this is a solid lineup. I don't know that this is a lineup that is spectacular in any one place. You know, even say, I was going to say uh, Acuna aside, and he's been great, but like, you know, 124 OPS plus, and obviously in center field with the stolen base totals, that's a huge deal. Um, but like nobody on this, I don't, I don't think anybody on this team is going to finish top five in MVP, you know, MVP voting, for instance. Um, and I, you know, Maybe that that plays up in the, in the playoffs. It just my read at the start of the season was the lineup was going to be good. They're they have an incredible wealth of young position players, and they will go as far as this pitching staff takes them. And they've been, you know, I, I think solid top to bottom. I don't know that there's an ace that's really emerged. You know, Mike Soroka has put up some really good numbers, um, and I guess just sort of time will tell with him. Um, but you know. Th- Julio Tehran is is a, a solid like two or three starter right now. I think the the same could be said of Dallas Keuchel, who's pitched pretty well, um, at least in terms of run prevention since joining the Braves. Uh, so I I agree with you that like they don't jump out at me as a team that's particularly well suited to the playoffs. But I think they do deserve credit for one the fact that we're talking about that a week before the trade deadline that it's like almost a certainty that they're going to get there. Um, Two, you know, I, I will admit that we just sort of don't know. You know, we'll see how they react to the postseason once they, you know, once the postseason comes. I think their lineup might be undersold a bit. Your comment that they don't have star power. Like, they do have three really solid hitters in Acuna, Freddie Freeman, and Josh Donaldson, who isn't quite at his Blue Jays level, but he quietly has a 374 on base, 521 slugging. So those three form a very solid core and also this is important, especially given their competition in the NL. They don't have any like weak spots in the lineup. Every That's other the hitter, big thing. Yes. Yeah, they're at least average. And I think you could quibble and say maybe Ozzy Albies should be a little better than he's been so far. Someone like Dan B. Swanson, who was a former top pick, maybe he should be a little better, but they're at least average. They're good at up the middle positions. Austin Riley came up hot and he's cooled off a bit, but they can trot out at least average players one through eight. And that makes for a really solid lineup. The problem comes with the pitching. Uh, Some numbers to throw at you. The Braves have the fifth best winning percentage in baseball. But if you look at the underlying numbers, it's a little less impressive. So Fangraphs tracks a stat called base runs, which looks at basically the number of runs a team should score and allow uh, based on the hits and walks it allows. And the Braves only have the 10th best base runs record, basically identical with the Nationals. Uh, by baseball prospectus, which tracks third order winning percentage, which kind of does the same thing, but with a different formula. The Braves are 11th best in baseball near the Nationals, the Reds, the Brewers. So I think by record, they look like the clear second best team in the NL behind the Dodgers, but they're much more in the the muddled pack. I think if you look at the underlying numbers, it's really the Dodgers and then like six or seven teams, maybe even more who I could kind of conceivably argue is second best. And a lot of that does come down to pitching. The Braves have a bottom half pitching staff by almost any number. And I don't know if any of the pitchers they have on hand can make a leap before October to like inspire any more confidence. And I think that's why it's important to talk about that now because they have so many prospects. Do they have the ability and the wherewithal to make a move before July uh, before July ends and add someone to Soroka at the top of the rotation, add to Luke Jackson at the back of the bullpen, because right now they have like one and a half good starters and maybe one and a half good relievers, and that does not uh, an October contender make. Yeah, we'll see what, I mean, this just sort of goes in the in the dump of of like 
relievers are unpredictable, particularly in the playoffs, because, you know, Josh Tomlin's thrown, I think he's thrown more innings than any other Braves reliever, just eyeballing the the numbers right now. Um, and, you know, there's Soroka is interesting because out of all those young guys, he was not the one I would have picked to have the best season because it just didn't seem like he had the up the upside of a guy like. Um, I don't know, Kyle Wright was my guy, you know, but going into going into this year and he's been up and down uh, both figuratively uh, in that he has performed well and not and also uh, up and down from the from the majors to triple A, um, you know, it's but like they had like six or seven guys who could have been that number one or two starter and you know, Soroka is not, you know, he's not the guy with the highest upside, but he's been the the one who's really had the breakout season. Um, to say nothing of Mike Fultonavich just giving them absolutely nothing after being, after having a season last year where in a normal year he would have gotten serious Cy Young consideration. Um, so, you know, I it's not out of the question that somebody like that reveals himself down the stretch. Uh, but I think they pro- at this point, they probably have to go outside the organization, um, which is... On one level, that's fine because they've got, like you said, a ton of prospects, even with all these guys they brought up. Um, you know, I read something today that Ian Anderson could potentially be one of the uh, could be the tentpole for a, a trade. And, you know, I don't love Ian Anderson, but he's a better prospect than most other teams can can uh, can throw out there for somebody like Marcus Stroman or whatever, uh, whatever direction they decide to go. But because the pack is so muddled. In terms of contention, like Madison Bumgarner is all of a sudden not going anywhere. You know, what are the Diamondbacks going to do with Robbie Ray and Zach Granke? What are, you know, and when you do that, are the Braves going to be willing to to take on a long term commitment like the one that that, you know, like something that would uh, be required uh, to get a pitcher like Granke or get a pitcher? um I was going to say Lance Lynn, but he's actually on a really nice contract uh, from a team perspective. Uh, or do you know? Do they go out and maybe overpay for for cost control by going out and getting somebody like Stroman or, or Matt Boyd? Um, so it, I'm I just really don't have a good handle on what the starting pitching market is going to be like, uh, or even the relief market because now that the Giants are out of it. If they're not selling, that takes Will Smith off the market. That takes Sam Dyson off the market, and all of a sudden everything else just gets a little bit more expensive and a little bit more unpredictable. So. You know, I think the Braves would be in a better position to buy if the market were a little bit clearer. And we've still got another week to go before the deadline, and maybe that straightens themselves out or straightens itself out. Yeah, I think they're in a fine position position from uh, a buying perspective, but they might, you know, they might have to pay sticker price when it comes down to crunch time instead of really seeking out a, a bargain. And you know, that's that's fine. That's sort of that's why you build this young core that they built, so you can go and add the extra missing pieces to it. Uh, you know, without having to to pull a rabbit out of your hat. Yeah, so let's toss out some names because right now, who starts game two of a playoff series? As a reminder, last year in the NLDS against LA, the Braves didn't have a single starter get through five innings. So they've already kind of been familiar with this. And right now, the options they would have are maybe Max Freed. He's another younger pitcher. But since the end of April, his ERA is 4.85. Not great. Kevin Gaussman has not... Uh, really been great this year. His underlying numbers look a little better, but his ERA is also almost six. Julio Tehran, like you said, is more of a back-end starter now. I think he's solid, but not necessarily someone you want to... Yeah, it might be a little unfair. I I think I might think he's a little bit better than you. Okay. So we could quibble about him, but then you also have Fultonavich, who, like you mentioned, I think we all Not on the active roster right now. Yeah, I think he was... It was expected that he would regress this year, but nowhere by near the amount. And maybe injuries have played a role in that. But like even in the minor leagues this year, uh, since his demotion, he has not performed all that well. I think Dallas Keuchel is the wild card. Uh, it certainly would have been nice if Atlanta had signed him a little earlier, allowed him more time to adjust to know if he's going to be back to the Dallas Keuchel they can count on. But right now he has the lowest strikeout rate uh, since he was a rookie. It's one of the lowest in the majors since he began pitching uh, again this season. And it's just kind of unclear what he's going to be able to give, given how late his season started. Maybe he's ready by October, but because there's no second trade deadline this year, because the Braves basically need to decide what they want to do in the next week, they don't have time for Keiko to work out the kinks uh, that were precipitated by him starting the year so late. 
Yeah, I mean, they're going to get freed back. I think he probably figures into the playoff rotation unless they add a piece. Um, I'm not that worried about the rotation. Um, you know, maybe some, I, that front three of Soroka, Tehran, Keichel is fine. I think maybe, you know, none of those guys has like, you know how there are number three starters who are who are number three starters because they're average and steady. And there are number three starters who sometimes pitch like a one and sometimes they pitch like a five. The Michael uh, Pineda. Yeah, like I would actually feel a little bit better if they had like the same value and I'm making air quotes here, the same value in their starting rotation, uh, but had a little bit more Pineda and a little bit less. That's exactly what I meant with my Tehran comment. He's a fine number three, but he's not going to give you six shutout innings in a playoff game, probably. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the the flip side of that is like, you know, going six innings or I don't know. You don't go six innings if you give up four runs in the playoffs anymore, which sort of goes into the point I'm going to make in a second. You know, if allowing three runs in four innings or something like that, that that's, you know, that's not equivalent to just getting blown the hell up and allowing eight runs in an inning and two thirds or whatever. But that's it still puts you at a huge disadvantage against, you know, it's certainly against the Dodgers. Maybe the rest of the, the National League is just so messed up that that uh this ends up not mattering um but i think the rotation's fine i'm just maybe this is a little concern trolley but i would almost rather them uh see them go go out and get another couple bullpen arms you know if that's where you're gonna that's where i would devote my prospect resources maybe that's not you know maybe you don't give up ian anderson for ken giles but you can you can get you know, that's where that's where I think the value is in this market right now. And the other thing uh, that that I was going to say in terms of, of getting value, you know, there this lineup is very deep. You know, I think the the thing that sticks out is just their top eight uh, eight players in plate appearances this year all have uh, an OPS plus of a hundred or better. And I think that that obscures a little bit how bad Austin Riley's been since that really hot start he got off to. Um, but you can get a left fielder. Like they are weak in places where you can go find solutions. Uh, so I think that that makes them in addition to their huge hall of prospects that they could, you know, that depth and quality up top, they can go fix these things if they want to. I think that's a good point. I was most concerned about the rotation, but you're right. The, the opportunity cost for someone like, I don't know, Matt Boyd is a lot higher than just adding a reliever who can make perhaps almost as much of a difference in October. I think, yeah, if you, I I would rather add Ken Giles or Shane Green or somebody like that uh, than Matt Boyd, because I just think impact, particularly for a team like Atlanta, who like, you know, they don't need another number two or three starter like in the macro level. Like, obviously, every team can use more pitching, but like, that's not you know, they're not like a, to contrast them to a team like the Phillies who just have no starting pitching depth whatsoever. Um, guys who can just sort of be reliable and eat innings the, you know, the Braves have that. Um, so that's not going to be an issue for them going forward. And I think I, I wrote this a couple weeks ago. I think that if a team makes a stupid trade, one that we look back at on five or six years from now, like the Mark to trade or, um, or the Eric Bedard trade, it's going to be for one of Boyd or Stroman. Cause that you know you're not paying for performance so much as you're paying for for like cost control and you know that's just it's that's how you get in trouble you don't get in trouble by paying a lot for talent you get in trouble for paying a lot for economic reasons so and i'm not saying the Braves are going to do that um but if i were them i would go in you know i i just think there's better value for talent uh in the relief pitcher market and if you know you can get two or three of those guys and and end up eating as many innings as you know, that fourth starting pitcher would. It is funny that the Braves were kind of propped up as a, as an example, maybe counter to the Cubs where the Cubs, when they were rebuilding, they built their lineup with players like Chris Bryan and Javi Baez and Anthony Rizzo and figured, okay, we can buy the pitching later, which they ended up doing. The Braves were brought up as the reverse of that. They invested so much in young pitchers, but now their lineup is much more secure. They have the long-term pieces set there and signed to way below market extensions. And even now, their top prospects in the minors, the elite ones, are position players. So that shows, I think, they have so many young, potentially great pitchers, but none of them, Soroka aside, has really broken through yet. I've, I've still got all my Kyle Wright stock. 
So I I think it'll happen for at least one or two of these guys. It just hasn't happened yet. And they mm-hmm. can afford to, you know, and they're they're in a position now where they can afford to be patient. So, you know, if they want to go out and trade Ian Anderson and some of these other uh, talented young starters for Zach Greinke, they can go do that or they can sort of, you know, they can let it ride and just add here and there. Because um, like I said, they're they're what I like about their position is they are weak at places where you can fix it and you can't fix it like you can't fix everything uh, based on the players that are available at this year's trade deadline. like the the star position player is just not out there this year. So but you can go get a power hitting corner in, or corner outfielder for cheap. You can go get bullpen help that's out there. And so, you know, I think that they don't even have to make a big move, but they can really solidify themselves by just being being smart in a couple of small moves over the next couple of weeks. Well, maybe next week we'll uh, have an Atlanta move to talk about. Oh, next week's a trade deadline, isn't it? So we'll be we'll be talking about. Uh, I'm sure that they're going to make at least one trade, and we'll talk about this, and then we'll talk about it again after the after the deadline. And once we realize, you know, once everybody wakes up and realizes what their roster is and starts screaming in horror, we'll talk about that again the week after. Uh, so I will let you go, and we'll talk again uh, in seven days. Until then. Becoming a successful business owner doesn't just happen. It takes hard work, resources, and a little bit of luck. For business owners, one of the best resources to help you run your business is LegalZoom. LegalZoom was created to help all Americans confidently get past the hurdles that come with owning a business. In fact, more than 2 million people have trusted LegalZoom to help start or run their businesses. Whether you have questions about incorporating or forming an LLC or need tax advice, contracts reviewed, or info on trademarks, their network of independent attorneys and professionals can provide the guidance you need. And the best part is you won't get charged by the hour since LegalZoom is not a law firm. Get LegalZoom help with your small business worries so you can focus on what you do best. Visit LegalZoom.com now and use promo code MLB at checkout for special savings. That's LegalZoom.com, promo code MLB. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. LegalZoom.com, promo code MLB. When you're looking for new furniture, there's a lot to consider, like how you're going to get it in the door, how comfortable it will be when the game goes to extra innings. Burrow is changing all of that with simple, adaptable, easy-to-move furniture that can be assembled and disassembled in just a few minutes. Plus, it ships to your door fast and free. Now, this morning, I made a sandwich that took longer to assemble than my Burrow love seat. That sandwich lasted about six minutes, but my Burrow is going strong after more than a year of being jostled, flopped on, and scratched by my cat. Give your living room the upgrade it needs with Burrow, the official sofa of The Ringer. Get $75 off a new sofa and free one-week shipping by visiting burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MLB for $75 off a new sofa. So it is my pleasure for my next segment to welcome back to the podcast, Mark Normandon, uh, author and blogger and uh, uh, epistolary mastermind. Ooh. Mark, welcome back. Thank you for that intro. I don't think I've I don't think I've ever had one uh, quite like that. Um, so the reason I wanted to talk to you is that uh, I joked a couple weeks ago uh, with Ben that I was sort of bored with discussing like macro level uh, economic shittiness in baseball. And uh, so I'm going to discuss it with you because something really shitty happened over the past week. Uh, ben Badler of Baseball America reported that we could have an international draft as soon as next year, maybe 2021, pending approval from the Players Union. Uh, I'm just going to run down a couple of the details from uh, Ben's piece. Uh, it, it requires approval for the from the union so the the league just can't institute this uh unilaterally it would be 20 rounds with heart with uh, hard slotting uh picks would be allowed to be traded anybody go- who goes outside the first 20 rounds would be eligible to sign for up to $25,000 and my favorite part about this is the rule 4 draft which is what we consider the MLB draft which governs players from the United States Canada and Puerto Rico uh is that that draft order is in reverse order of the previous year's record, whereas the proposed international draft would not be. It would rotate uh, annually by division, which I like because it really, you know, it does away with the pretense that the draft is about competitive balance. Uh, so I, you know, you being an expert in issues of economic injustice, uh, I wanted to bring you on because this just seems like the latest and most brazen in a series of, of such uh, such developments over the past few years. 
Yeah, I was reading through that Badler piece and I mean, I came into it skeptical, uh, you know, uh, back in May, I wrote, um, I wrote something for Deadspin headlined, um, baseball owner, owners want an international draft because they want absolute control. So, you know, I, I come into this article by Badler already not feeling good about it. And then as I read, I'm like, oh, good. I'm, I'm, I'm right. That sucks. <laughs> just like the, once I got to the hard cap part, that was really where yes. I just like rolled my eyes and was like, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. They're really just trying to screw over everyone from day one. So right now, I mean, up until as far back as, as, uh, as I can remember, players have been eligible to sign when they were 16 years old. If they come from outside of the, the area governed by, uh, the American, uh, draft system or the, yeah, uh, other major leagues, whether it be in Japan or Korea or elsewhere. And, uh, a few years ago, I, this would have been in the 2012 CBA. I think they brought in the matching penalties. So if you went over a certain, uh, draft pool, then you could be penalized up to a hundred percent of the amount of the signing bonus. So this is Yohan Mankata signed with the Red Sox for something like $30 million. Uh, and the, the league charged the Red Sox another $30 million on top of that. And I think that I, that's not the exact number, but it's, it's relatively close. And then in the most recent CBA, they went to a hard cap system where you're just not allowed to like, you have a certain number of, of dollars to spend on all your international free agents under the age of 25, uh, wherever they may come from. And you're just not allowed to go over that. There's no, like no flexibility or penalties like there used to be, uh, or even are in the, uh, in the rule for draft and in the, uh, for domestic players. And so where, what ended up happening is players, particularly up-and-coming Cuban players like Mankata or Yasiel Puig used to get bonuses in the tens of millions of dollars. Now, the max, the absolute max that you can pay for anybody is about $5 million. And that's if you punt on the entire rest of your class. And this has changed the entire economics of, of amateur scouting in Latin America. And so what... So just to... That's setting the table for where things are. How would the draft make things worse from the player perspective? Oh, the fact that they camp, uh, they have hard slots that assign value to uh, every pick where, you know, if, if, if the hard slot for a pick is a million and under the old market, under the old setup, they could have, I mean, even, even not going back to like when Mankata could sign for 30 million, uh, you know, the guys who could sign for 5 million or 3 million or 2 million, you know, they won't be able to do that. Uh, and there's a very much take it or leave it aspect to this. Um, that didn't exist before because uh, even when players were negotiating when they're 14, when they're not supposed to, uh, they can negotiate with multiple teams. You know, it's kind of like, hey, who wants to make the best illicit offer to me? Um, but if you're set up in a draft and you're just going to be drafted and it's really just take it or leave it, you have no leverage. You know, that's that's it. Like, cool, someone's probably not taking a cut out of you like they would have before uh, with the trainers. But I mean, OK, they probably still will. I was going to say, I don't, I don't see how, how that changes anything. Yeah. Someone still, someone still has to drug the, the 13 year olds Mm -hmm. uh, so that they get scouted so they can be drafted when they're 16 anyway. So it just takes away uh, player, player options, player leverage. And I mean, that's, that's the idea behind all of this is, you know, uh, to, to bring it out a little further for a second, you know, you, you look at like, Oh, how do we fix free agency? One of the problems with free agency is that players are desperate for whatever money is given to them immediately. So they're signing these deals that uh, buy out their arbitration years and some of their early free agency years because they need this guaranteed payout. And they need this guaranteed payout because they weren't paid enough as an international free agent or as a, on a you know, their signing bonus in the draft um, or in the minor leagues where they're making poverty level wages. So you're just, you kind of build up this like five or six or seven year run of having no money. And then someone goes, hey, we'd really like to exploit you but it'll help you right now. Um, So this would just make that kind of thing even worse because you're not going to get a situation, you know, under under the previous system, the Braves were able to give Ronald Acuna a hundred thousand dollars for a signing bonus. You know, like look at, look at the kind of player he is. And people knew he was a big deal even when he was signed then, but you know, there's all these machination, uh, all these ways they can like hide players away and give them less and kind of just take care of them quietly uh, before they're signed. It's just going to, it's going to take away even that kind of, it's going to make that look good. 
which is a real <laughs> problem when you can make this already huge mess of a system look like the quaint olden days where things went well. I, and I would say like the way things are going now or even went before the caps or, or before the caps got as draconian as they are now, like it's you mentioned the you're technically not supposed to sign players before they're 16. Everybody does. Everybody, all 30 teams talk to players as young as 13 or 14, if not younger, that uh, they negotiate through trainers who take a huge cut of uh the signing bonuses that these players get and even like somebody at the very these prospects at the very top of the line like nomar mazar or miguel sano they're getting like five million dollars at the very top end uh or not even as much as that sometimes i think sano might only sign for for i think three um but that's got to carry them essentially until arbitration. And so even the ones that make it that far have to live on that money and send it back, you know, and in many cases support their families uh, for as long as seven or eight years until they can make the, the major leagues and actually start pulling down real money. And so there's all this corruption. You mentioned the, uh, the steroids for players, you know, for up and up and coming players. There was a, a long tradition of identity fraud and uh, players falsifying their names and ages. Um, It's these, it just strikes me that major league baseball has instituted this system of rules that they never rules that they never enforced. Uh, And instead of actually enforcing those rules, they're just trying to take as large a piece of the pie as possible in the the name of clean, you know, quote unquote, cleaning up the system. And I I just don't see how that's going to change much in terms of the uh, the corruption that that you hear about coming from uh, from some of these foreign markets. And it, what all it's going to do is just depress the the slice of the pie for the people with the least power and the least leverage. And it's just it's just so it's not. It's not shocking, but it's it's just brazen, and it's uh, it's depressing how little recourse that these you know these players have no recourse, they have no leverage, they have no power either individually or as a class, and fans either don't know or don't care. Uh, and the the players union, who is uh, nominally supposed to stick up for the interests of these players, if these these kids are not union members yet; they won't become union members until they hit the big leagues. By which point, the damage is already done. And so, yeah, this it's just another piece of of just not even pretending that this is about anything other than maximizing short short term uh, profits, and that's the the root of all evil, all the problems that we have in Major League Baseball right now. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible that they're running this line out there that you know they're cleaning up the system, but even in their even in their moments where they are attempting to clean it up, like when they suspended, uh, they banned John Capoeira for life. And they, what, how many race prospects was it? Like Something like a dozen. Yeah. yeah. Some, yeah. Um, you know, one of them was 13 years old when the Braves agreed to a deal with him, but that's not the thing that major League baseball got mad about. Uh, all the reported rumors about it were that they were mad that they, that the Braves had package deals that worked around the, uh, worked around the bonus pool, uh, for signing players. So, you know, shifting money to one guy when it's really, you know, you reported as going to this guy and that's how you convince this prospect to sign with you. And really you shouldn't have had the money to do it. That's what they got in trouble for. MLB doesn't care about signing the guys when they're 13 and they either don't care because they know everyone does it and they just don't care about the consequences or they don't care because they know that it's something that they can wag their finger at later and say that, you know, they need to change it. So it just becomes leverage for them you know, the situation of their own creation that they already have the rules in place to enforce, to stop it from happening. But why enforce it when you can institute an international draft and crush the workers even more under your boot? I was about to ask what can be done. And there, this is just like so many other things, not just in baseball, um, but in terms of the intersection of money and power and capitalism and American society as a whole, there's just, the people who have the money and power want more of it. And they have so such a great advantage already that the, the only limit to, to greed is imagination. And it's just, you could just get away with, uh, you know, pocketing, uh, you know, not stamping out this kind of corruption and, you know, turning it in, turning organized baseball into, 
sports feudalism. Yeah. So yeah, there, there is like this feudal relationship and I just don't, I guess we're in for, for another couple hundred years of this. (laughs) I mean, the only, the only bright spot is that the players association wasn't caving to the international draft idea the last two times it was brought up. Um, so now when they don't really feel much like talking because they trust, they trust management a lot less than they did a few years ago. Um, I can't imagine they're going to let it happen now because they have to, they have to be starting to see how much all of this is connected and how, if there's any possible loophole to be exploited, it will be exploited as much as management can do it. I mean, maybe, I don't know if that's naive, but it feels there's so many players speaking out about this and starting to realize that there are problems and that they're bigger than just the free agent contracts that that in conjunction with their refusal to budge on allowing a draft to happen. It, it makes me feel a little tiny bit optimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I remember they did cave on a worldwide draft at one point, uh, almost 20 years ago. That was a different time though, too. You know, they, they, they were starting to get along a little better. They were just coming off of all the labor strife of the nineties and the eighties. Um, so I think they were a little more in the mood to play nice. Uh, but right now, you know, we've got them starting early conversations, which make it seem like they're eager to do things. But at the same time, Tony Clark's out there sniping at Manfred Manfred's out there sniping at Clark. So maybe it won't happen. The other thing about this that I've, I've sort of been kicking around is that if the league is proposing this as something that they know, the, it's just so outrageous and it's such a, a naked power grab that they know the players will, will not go for it. Uh, in order to, and so they're proposing in order to extract concessions somewhere else. Cause right now, you know, this is just another instance of, of the draft, the existence of a draft, the existence of, of capped bonuses, either, uh, in North America or abroad. It's just to reduce player costs at the very front end. And so when you take that through arbitration, the, the teams have realized that players are producing the most value when they are cheapest. And so there's no incentive whatsoever to pay free agents. And uh, I think players slowly are coming around to the idea that we don't need to fight for some, to fight to restore the system that the way it worked in 1997, that, you know, if, if the most, if, if teams are going to value players, uh, in their early twenties and let's get players paid younger and more, uh, so that the guys who, you know, when Carlos Correa is out there, uh, as the best player on a playoff team, when he's 20 years old, let's make sure he's paid a, uh, commensurately. And, you know, I think that that's a winning argument. Um, but I think the international draft and, and view just looking at how, uh, when the, uh, when the league tried to get this in the last round of CBA negotiations uh, and a lot of the veterans really spoke out against this, uh, Jose Bautista comes to mind uh, that they could inspire that same kind of visceral reaction and extract uh, concessions elsewhere. Uh, So say, okay, we're um, we're not going to do an international draft as long as we keep arbitration uh, to three years or, or four years and and uh, don't do anything about service time manipulation. And from that perspective, what makes sense to me from the player standpoint is say, okay, if you're going to propose an international draft, then I say, you know, then let's just do away with the draft altogether or, uh, or go straight to arbitration after one year of service time instead of three, something like that. And that's, but I just don't know if if the, the players association has the, the willpower or the leverage or even the imagination to, to go do something like that. That's kind of the, the thing, right? It's a, uh, I mean, I could, I could talk for a long time about the things that I really think they should focus on. And the problem is the whole sport will come to a standstill. Mm-hmm. And from where I'm sitting, that's okay. Cause the sport is very ill and it needs a rest and it needs to come back in a much healthier form. Uh, but the people with the big contracts or the people who haven't gotten their big contracts yet aren't necessarily going to agree with that. And you have to get all those people on board for, uh, for that. But then again, I mean, it's going to be a lockout. It's not like it's going to be a strike. Uh, It's just if the owners are getting too much pushback from the players because they do want to reduce arbitration back to two years, like it was 30 years ago, or uh, they do want to abolish the draft or they want to, um, raise the minimum salary to fall in line with um, 
MLB's profits so that it actually, you know, if they did that now, it'd be almost $400,000 higher than it is. Uh, if you base it back on like 2002, uh, the mm-hmm. first, the first luxury tax system year, um, it, like owners aren't going to go for any of that. And then if the players don't cave, there's going to be a lockout. So I don't know. It feels like the only way to fix everything. Is I don't think there's going to be a lockout. I think the, I think ownership's fine with the way things are. I don't, I don't know if this is like an NHL type system where they're going to press their advantage just because they can. I think they're so sure that the players just like in order to, to make real progress, the players would have to, to risk going like going to war against a, an opponent that has more resources and more guns. And I, you know, I, I think the owners like they, they know they don't have to risk a work stoppage in order to, to keep things going the way they are, not just like to keep the status quo, but to make sure that the game continues to evolve economically in a way that's advantageous to them. Well, that's what I mean though, is if, um, if the owners feel like the game is up and the players are no longer willing to, you know, play ball sports metaphor, um, and negotiations drag on, they're not going to let the 2022 season open to give players a chance to strike. Like they're just going to lock out in the spring. Um, I don't think they're going to do it like now in these little talks they're doing, you know, this like kind of warm up rounds they're doing now. Uh, I just see if the players actually do dig their heels in and really fight for the things they need to fight for ownership's going to try and squeeze them out because that's, that's the, that's the tool left to them. Well, we shall see. Um, I want to say it's a pleasure having you on, but every time we talk, it's uh, it's about depressing shit like this. Um, <laughs> well, it needs to be talked about. What do you have to plug? Uh, my Patreon, where I talk about this depressing shit all the time. So it's uh, patreon.com slash Mark Normandon, uh, which is also my website is marknormandon.com. Uh, I send out a newsletter or post something to that website uh, about a dozen times per month. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you have access to all of it. I also have some free stuff that I do uh, once or twice a month. So that's all available if you want to you wanna check out what I've done. Uh, if you like your depressing baseball news in uh, written form instead of verbal, there it is. All right. Well, uh, go, uh, go check all that out. Mark, thanks for joining me. Of course. Anytime. When was the last time you thought about your tires? Tires are what makes a difference in how your car feels and drives. And since 1960, Discount Tire has been keeping customers safe by taking care of all of your tire and wheel needs. With more than 1,000 locations across 34 states, their main focus is your safety and the safety of everyone else on the road. Discount Tire provides tire rotations, balancing, free flat repairs, free air checks, and more. And because safety is so important, they provide free tire safety inspections. Discount Tire also has the lowest prices on the best and largest selection of tires and wheels. They'll even make personalized recommendations for you based on your zip code and driving preferences. Whether you need an air check or a set of tires and wheels, Discount Tire can help you get back on the road with peace of mind and change to spare. Visit DiscountTire.com to shop, research, and purchase your tires today. You can even make an appointment to skip the lines. That's DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire. They'll get you taken care of. All right, so to wrap it up uh, here at the farthest point in the future of the Ringer MLB show, we're going to take a look into the past and the Hall of Fame. And here to do that is my good friend, Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how you doing? Doing well. Happy topic today. We just get to talk about people celebrating and being celebrated, and we get to celebrate them too. Yeah. Uh, so this was a, a big class. Uh, so let's just run down the the names. Mike Mussina, Mariano Rivera, Roy Halladay, Edgar Martinez, uh, Lee Smith, and uh, Harold Baines, as well <laughs> as uh, we're going to talk about Harold Baines a little bit. Took you a moment to recall that last name. Well, there's just a lot of there's just a lot of names on this list. It's a big class, yes. as well as uh, one of them is not quite like the others. Well, arguably two of them, but yes, continue. Uh, so, and in addition, the J uh, the J G Taylor Spink Award uh, mm-hmm. given to it's a lifetime achievement award for baseball writers given to Jason Stark of the Athletic, uh, late of ESPN in the Philadelphia Inquirer, where he was one of the very first baseball writers I read. Uh, growing up so he is cool like i don't like this is very nerdy of me to to say oh yeah i remember mariano rivera and edgar martinez might be seen a pitching when i was a kid and i was it's like and at the same time I'm like oh jason stark you know he was one of the first you know i remember him i really looked up to him as a young writer and now he's going in the hall of fame so uh, yeah 
And and given how old we are and how long he's been doing this and that we were reading him at such a young age, it makes sense that he is 68 years old. But oh, man. When, you, when you broke that news to me, I was as shocked as We've anyone. We've been talking because... about this in Slack uh, yeah. all week. Jason Stark looks great he looks for 68. I need So, Jason, if you're out there listening, congratulations. And please tell me about your skincare regimen. Yeah, covering baseball can be hard on the body physically. I mean, all that sun and the junk food and the travel and the lack of sleep. But Jason Stark, he is living well. So (laughs) kudos to him for many reasons. You know, just the the Hall of Fame of looking good in your late 60s. So, uh, you know, I I imagine the people who are less dorky than us want to hear about the players. Um, This is I, I like this class a lot. Uh, cause it just, it got four people in off the, and just as a big hall guy who doesn't really care that much about PEDs and is sort of exhausted by the, just the sanctimony and the, the intensity of the, the various hall of fame discussions. I just want as many people to get in as possible. Cause there are some, you know, there are probably as many as 15 candidates, uh, who, on the like on the the BBWAA ballot proper at, in any given year now who have a statistical case to to get in and so just it's just there are 10 spots on each ballot let's just get as many of these guys um who are slam dunk uh, statistical cases in the Hall of Fame and off the ballot so we can like talk about Larry Walker for instance and all these interesting you know edge cases that you know really inspire uh, the kind of passionate debate and feeling and like the methodological conversations that ordinarily make this make Hall of Fame debates interesting. So Musina is a guy who had no doubt about it credentials and has just been lingering on the ballot. I would argue Edgar Martinez as well, uh, although there's like that. I was going to say interesting. It's horseshit. The the are the you know, is a DH really a, a complete player enough to get in the Hall of Fame? Um, so I'm glad he's in. And then two first ballot guys, Rivera and Halliday. The other interesting thing about this class, and we'll get to Smith and Baines in a little bit, is like this is a, a very like big emotional class, um, you know. Obviously, Roy Halladay meaning as much as he did to not only Blue Jays fans, but Phillies fans and uh, and having died uh, tragically um, before he was inducted. Like that was a big I took a huge risk and watched part of his wife's speech from a, a in public in a coffee shop and uh, managed not to cry. But it was not that's not the smartest thing I've ever done. But, you know, you think of what Mariano Rivera meant to a generation of, of Yankee fans or Edgar to a, to that generation of Mariners fans. Like, it's just it, this was very cool just in terms of how meant how much all four of these guys meant to different people. Yeah. And you and I are almost the same age and we're sort of in the sweet spot where we appreciated these players as kids or young adults, adolescents, like we were old enough to really appreciate their primes, but not so old, I guess, that we were the the jaded and cynical people that we are today. So we could appreciate them with some childlike wonder. And part of the consolation of getting older and seeing the players that you knew get old and gray-haired and become eligible for the Hall of Fame is that you get to see the players of your youth on the podium making speeches and the objects of affection from everyone. Not that you need to be in a certain age group to appreciate the greatness of these players, but we're at that point right now where it feels like these are our players, our generation's players to a certain extent. And so it's great to see them go in and get to relive their accomplishments. And I think that's part of it. Uh, most of these guys, certainly the the BBWAA electees here were, I think, very deserving. I would have voted for all of them. I'm not eligible to vote for another year or two, but I don't think of myself as a big hall guy or a small hall guy, really. I think of myself as like an established standards guy, like basically do these players match up to the players who've been put into the hall in the past? And that's sort of the, the guideline I that I tend to I sense where this is to. going. Well, and I sense a tonal shift. No, I'm not going to get there yet. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying that that has, in effect, made me a big hall guy lately, just because there's been such a backlog on the ballots because of all the PED stuff, especially, that there really have been 10 or more qualified candidates every single year lately. 
And now I think we're just finally clearing out that backlog a little bit where maybe I can't come up with a full ballot's worth of deserving players I would vote for anymore. But for a while now, that's been the case. So it's nice to see some of these guys who've been waiting way too long. I mean, Mike Messina should have been a first ballot guy. I think the whole first ballot, non-first ballot distinction is sort of silly. But if anyone's a first ballot guy, he he deserves to be on there because he was great. And And these are players I grew up watching and you grew up watching. And as a New York kid, Mariano Rivera, of course, was a, a big part of my early baseball watching experience. Mike Messina was probably my favorite pitcher of all time. So to see these guys celebrated, this was this was really nice. And you mentioned the Edgar DH thing. There are, I guess, two schools of thought. One is that like DHs can never get in. Another is that DH is a position in baseball these days. We should just treat it like any other position. So if you're the best DH, then you should be a Hall of Famer. I don't necessarily believe that either, but I just think that Edgar was so good and he was such a great hitter that even if you do ding him for being a DH and for not being able to play the field for much of his career, his offensive value more than made up for it. I mean, these were guys who were all really fun to watch and just masters of their craft and some incredible peaks in this group, a lot of longevity in this group, just nothing really to quibble with, with at least the four BBWA inductees here. Yeah. And to that point, like the DH, I, I find that argument tedious and specious because we've already elected Frank Thomas, who is essentially a DH and like, I don't know. There have yeah. been some bad defensive players. One of the best hitters of all the, time. Yeah. I mean, it, it'll be interesting when we, we come to David Ortiz, who- That's that's what I was going to say. If yeah. Edgar didn't get in, then I was going to raise a fucking shit fit <laughs> if or, if, when Ortiz right. uh, waltzed in with 97% of the vote when he's eligible, because there's no statistical case for Ortiz over Edgar Martinez. And if you're mad about that, if you're a Red Sox fan, uh, please direct all your hate messages to <laughs> at Ben Lindbergh on Twitter. <laughs> Um, so, but now that he's in, everybody can, can go through this without, uh, me, you know, kicking and screaming. Uh, so, you know, it's, he, he's another player who I think he and Musina a little bit, both suffered from the, uh, there's just not like one spectacular season or moment that mm-hmm. you really point to that. They were just among the best in baseball for 10, 12, 15 years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's in my book, that's good enough, but it's tough to, it's very easy to make a statistical case for those guys. And it's tougher to make sort of a, an emotional case. And I think, you know, the, a lot of this debate, um, resonates with that. And, you know, we see the, the positives of, of that in this very class with Rivera and Halliday, who were both, who both have impeccable statistical, uh, statistical cases, but were dominant, you know, and in a way that, uh, maybe Musina and Edgar Martinez weren't. Yeah. Um, so, Mussina you know, had I, a, a really good postseason track record too. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't really have that reputation. He's not quite in the, the same stratosphere as Rivera. Of course, no one is, but he was very good in that respect also. And yeah, they, they both, the knock against both of those guys, especially Messina's that like he was never the best and he never won a Cy Young award. He did, I think, lead the league in war once, but never won the Cy Young. But I mean, he was pitching during a time when Greg Maddox was pitching, Pedro Martinez was pitching, Randy Johnson was pitching. These are a few of the best pitchers of all time. Roger Clemens too. I mean, this is like, you know, the top five pitchers of all time. It's like four of them right there. I mean, these are elite, elite players. So to not have been the best at any point, he happened to overlap with the best of the best. And yeah. most Hall of Famers, I would say, were never the best at any point in their career because, you know, maybe they had one year when they were the best. I don't know. But I think it's enough to be on the short list of the best for close to 20 years. I mean, that is more than enough for me to get you in. Right. That's the the case. I mean, I think I made this this case when I wrote about it. Like he he was never the best pitcher in baseball. Maybe you know, never even the best pitcher in the American League, but he was like the sixth best pitcher in baseball from 1992 to 2008 when yeah. he retired. And like, he never won a World Series, but he was in the ALCS every year, not just with the Yankees, but when he was with the Orioles. That was, you know, the the last run of dominance before their, their 2010 season. And, you know, just tough luck for him that he uh, played for the Yankees from 2001 to 2008 and the Yankees won World Series in 
2000 and 2009. Right. <laughs> you know, if he had come out of reti- retirement uh, like Pedro Martinez did in 2009 and gets that ring, does he get in a couple, you know, a couple years earlier? You know, did, these are just the stupid margins that, you know, I, I, I sort of thumb my nose at this, but it, these are also like, if people didn't get pa- this passionate over like weird arbitrary things, then baseball will be a lot less fun to talk about and write about. And I, you know, I think even though in the the micro level, I sometimes find it irritating. Like this is part of building that folklore, mm-hmm. which is you know, that great literary historical tradition, which is what drew me to baseball above other sports in the first place. Yeah, it can get kind of exhausting, especially by the time you get to induction weekend, because a you're very familiar with all of these players from their long careers, and then you revisit their careers when you're talking about their candidacies, which if it's Messina, you're doing six times. If it's Edgar Martinez, you're doing many more times than that. So you go around and around and around, and then you celebrate them when they finally do get elected. And by the time they're actually getting inducted, it's like, haven't we had this conversation a million times before? But it's kind of nice to have it one more time with no stakes, really, no drama, no tension they're already in even if you don't think harold baines is a deserving hall of famer and yes i i contributed my take to that large library read the title i went back and looked it up sure failure by committee (laughs) it's the title of this column the case against harold baines hall of famer wow yeah i don't know if i if i wrote that one but yeah i i did a whole harold baines hall of fame in that article where i kind of came up with okay if harold baines is in the hall then who else would be in the hall if we're putting anyone with stats as good as harold baines in and it's like you know ray durham suddenly a hall of famer it's like Good players, not great players. But I mean, that's something that maybe you do love some Ray Durham. I do, but maybe I mean maybe you fight tooth and nail and you send angry tweets and you do blog posts about that stuff, even if you're not actually angry. Maybe you you take a strident tone from time to time as you're fighting pr- to preserve the historical standards of the hall. But once it's over and done with, and there's no changing it, it's just nice to see these guys get their day in the sun. Like Harold Baines seems like a great guy. I'm. Perfectly happy to have him be celebrated and to watch him make his speech and break down, and it means a lot to him. And yeah, his war is not in a a Cooperstown caliber place, but whatever. I mean, it's not going to ruin my enjoyment of baseball, and there are many undeserving statistical Hall of Famers in there already, so it it can only tarnish the, the group so much. That's part of the thing, like the the old timers committee things, like if you're invested enough in this to really care, um, then you know enough to know that like a lot of these veterans committee guys are, you know, I'm not going to say that Harold Baines is in there because of cronyism, but I will say that like the entire 1924 New York Giants are in there because <laughs> yes. of cronyism. Like there, there are, you know, people who are in there because they knew the, well, they knew Frankie Fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a little bit of that with Tony LaRusso now. Yes. Um, but like, you know, like there's, there's talk about first ballot versus not first ballot, inner circle versus not, but there is something too, like, we know the difference between Ted Williams and yeah. and Harold Baines, you know? Right. So I, I don't think it, I would rather have a Hall of Fame where he's in and Mussina's in and Jeff Bagwell's in than have, have a Hall of Fame where none of them are in. Yeah. I mean, maybe it makes Harold Baines's autograph a little more valuable on the yeah, signing and, circuit or something. You know what? Good for <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah. He played forever. That's okay. But it doesn't make us think less of the players who actually have those incredible stats who are in there. We're not you know, denigrating them because they're associated with Harold Baines in this large body of players. So that's perfectly fine. And yeah, I mean, Harold Baines was kind of a fun player too, in in his way. And so is is Lee Smith. I mean, these guys lasted forever. They were part of baseball in that era. It's it's not the worst selection ever. So I'm going to give like a little bit of a caveman take. Like I'm okay. I I actually like Lee Smith's statistical case for the Hall of Fame a little bit. Uh Because, like, you look at the strikeout numbers or the ERA or whatever, uh, you know, that's um, obviously comes up short of and particularly like if you take sort of a dim view of Hall of of, uh, relief pitchers, if you're the kind of person who thinks that you need to be Trevor Hoffman or Mariano Rivera or Billy Wagner, who isn't in, probably won't get in, but should. Uh, if you think that you need to be a closer needs to be at that level to get in, then that's fine. And, you know, I, I think broadly I agree. But as an illustration of like 
the first days of this single inning closer, they valued saves and Lee Smith had more saves than anybody else. And that was the statistic by which the public valued relief pitchers for a long time. And until Hoffman and Rivera came along, he had more of those than anybody else. And I, you know, I think it's, um, you know, I don't know if, if like I would jump up and down and, and demand that he be put in, but I think that's a reasonable, you know, extension of, uh, you know, the way that the pitchers were evaluated when he played in the late 80s and early 90s. Yeah, it's always an interesting debate how much we should judge players by what the standards were in their era. I'm a little more sympathetic to that argument with some things, like if you're going to tell me that walks weren't as valued in an earlier era and so-and-so would have taken more pitches and drawn more walks if that had been what was valued and prized at that time. I don't know that I always buy that. I kind of think that for the most part, well, there's something like, you know, Eddie Collins, who's one of the best second basemen in history, gave up, I think it was something like 500 sacrifice bunts. Uh-huh. Like how how much worse are his career sure, statistics? Because yeah. he gave away more free outs than literally anybody, any other player in Major League history. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think that that's a statistical. But if the point you're making, like not a statistical, like a, a tactical adjustment. Yeah. You know, I, he was playing according to the norms of the time and that impacted his statistics. Then, you know, I'm I'm definitely more sympathetic to that than this is just how we evaluate it. Yeah. If if managers in the second half of Smith's career had not gone to the one inning at a time save model, then he would have worked more and he might have been more valuable. Maybe he wouldn't have lasted as long as he did. But in his early years, he kind of bridged the gap between the those workhorse 70s closers and the non-workhorse 90s closers. So he did have, I think, three consecutive seasons where he pitched more than 100 innings. And so he, he was kind of like, you know, the, the crossover person. So maybe, I mean, you could say the same thing about Rivera because other than his year as a setup man, he never worked that kind of innings total, but he was just so dominant in the innings he did work that it didn't matter. He racked up a ton of value no matter how you look at it. Like Rivera's Worst seasons were like Smith's best seasons on a efficiency standpoint. So, and, and even the, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to underestimate the lunacy of the kind of people who lionize 80s baseball players. Uh, but I, I think even the most ardent Lee Smith partisan would not argue that he was in the same classes as Rivera. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't think so. But a lot of guys who lasted a long time, which obviously helps a lot if you want to make the Hall of Fame, and were really productive even at the end. I mean, Messina went out with his 21 season, so he could have held on and probably had more productive years if he'd wanted to. Rivera went out just about as good as he'd ever been. Edgar was, of course, great at 40. I guess not so great in his final, final season, but he was really great to the end. And Halliday is really the only exception in that he had the shoulder problems and his career kind of got cut short. But his peak was so superlative that I think he deserved to be in any way. He's yeah, he's the only and like you look at he's the only one who I, I would think of having a peak over longevity argument yes. out of this class. Right. And he had the whole kind of like last workhorse ever thing going for him. I, I don't know that mm-hmm. he would have been in on the first ballot if he had actually been around to be part of the vote, but I don't think that matters at all because I think he deserves to be there and, uh, yeah. and it's good that yeah. he got recognized. Oh, this is, I, I like this class. It's just a, like, like you said, like a fun, yeah. it's a, you know, I, I've been to Cooperstown. Obviously it's like, it, it was like a religious experience going there, just not just like to go to the Hall of Fame, but just like as a museum of baseball artifacts. That was, uh, you know, as it that was just so much uh, more enrapturing to mm-hmm. me than the, you know, the the plaques, as cool as they yeah. are. Um, but, you know, this is I, I like I said, I love that baseball is so aware of its own history. Um, and this is just part of the the ongoing, you know, construction of that folklore. And it is cool, like you said, to see, you know, like I had a Mike Messina poster on my wall when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And now he's there with, uh, you know, um, uh, Christy Matthewson, mm-hmm. you know, Walter Johnson or, you know, all these 
people who were figures from folklore. Yeah. No one, no uh, one I've enjoyed I watching more than Mike Messina pitching, I don't think, other than maybe, I don't know, Peak Pedro or something. But Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. I, I had he, no idea you were oh, big. I, I know you, you just said yeah. that, that you were a big Messina yeah. guy. That's a big he claim, just, particularly for you. so many pitches that he could command at the curve and the slider and the fastball and the knuckle curve and just movement that really like popped on tv i would always choose him as like my video game pitcher too because he had so many options and all the options moved so much but yeah this was fun i I mean there have been years where no one gets in or like one 19th century guy gets in and his great great grandson shows up to accept the honor we haven't had any of those that that sort of stinks i mean i'm not saying the nhl had one of those this year like just just a huge i'm not saying pad the numbers and put in someone just for the sake of having someone but if there are deserving candidates let's put them in because we like to see guys get in and get celebrated that's the whole point of this process Halliday's up there for like my favorite pitchers ever to watch mm-hmm. like like Halliday Maddox Brandon Webb is number one for oh, me forever yeah. uh which you know the the burly sinker baller <laughs> you you know how much I love that archetype yes. um but unfortunately talking of careers that got cut short because of shoulder injuries that's uh yep you would have made it though that's what Makes it so special for these guys that do last long enough and get in because there are a lot of guys who are on the Hall of Fame trajectory like Brandon Webb who don't make it because fate intervenes. Right. Well, I figure I got a couple decades to get on the the Veterans Committee or whatever, whatever they're calling it, and then I can start <laughs> making that case. Uh, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, unfortunately, uh, we have to podcast before I can get Brandon Webb into the Hall of Fame. And so I'm sure we'll talk about trade deadline and other stuff like that. But this is fun. Uh, you know, and apologies to Harold Baines. Uh, and congratulations to everybody else. <laughs> All right. Talk to you next week. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me today. Thanks to this week's guest, Mark Norman, for joining me as well. Uh, subscribe to his newsletter on Patreon. Look out for his work uh, at Deadspin and other places and follow him on Twitter at Mark underscore Normandin. Thanks to Evan Campbell and Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Ronald Acuna Jr., Mariano Rivera, and Jason Stark, among others, for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.